My conversation partner is not only a respected religious figure, but a friend and an admired colleague. Reverend Amanda Henderson is executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado. She is an ordained minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, where she has served as a pastor and continues to preach and teach in multiple communities. She is a graduate of Bright Divinity School, part of Texas Christian University, an alumnus of the Beatitudes Society, which sounds terribly Bonhoeffrian, <laughs> and is a, a frequent speaker and writer on topics of interfaith understanding, advocacy, and civic engagement. She is also a community leader in Denver, bringing people together for healing in times of tragedy and mobilizing individuals and groups in times of injustice. Amanda helped me with the title of my book. <laughs> now we're celebrating the release of hers, Holy Chaos, Creating Connections in Divisive Times. Hey, Amanda, it's great to be talking with you. Hi, Rob. It's so good to be talking with you as well. You are an inspiration to me, so I'm always grateful to get time together. Well, that's very humbling to hear you say that, and it's a mutual admiration society here. And I watch you from afar and know that I'm not alone on this, you know, sometimes uh, less populated path uh, that we've chosen. And, and the path that you've chosen has quite a history to it. Uh, one of the things I like our community, uh, you know, to do... Uh, is get to know the personal stories behind authors and especially of the books that we promote. So can we get to know a little bit about you? Can you take us back to the beginning of time, at least for your existence? <laughs> sure. Uh, how long do we have? <laughs> as long as you keep us entertained, and I think that's a long time. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I do the same. I, it's so no matter what I'm reading, whether it's an academic text or, uh, you know, even watching a movie or it's, I, it's so helpful for me to know the person who's doing the writing or the performing and it makes uh, the work that much more meaningful to me. So I appreciate the question um, as someone who appreciates other people's stories. So I um, entering into this space and this conversation, and I tell a lot of these stories in the book and am pretty personal and vulnerable as I know you often are in your writing as well. And so I didn't grow up terribly religious, uh, but I grew up very much in a culturally Christian community and family and conservative Christian uh, community. And I would add white Christian uh, Southwestern United States, rugged individualism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, while also really grounded in love and compassion and helping those who are in need. Some of my earliest memories are on my grandparents' back patio in the hills of Northern California, where my grandfather had built the Little Baptist Church and we would gather after church at their home and there would always be people that I had never met before that were hungry or needed a place to stay. And they were always welcome. Mm -hmm. Even if 
as I look back, I realize that the theology that my grandparents held and my grandmother still holds, she's alive, um, are very different than my theology, what uh, I how, witnessed. And how, if I may, yeah. how, how would you describe that theology? Was it fundamentalist, evangelical, conservative? You know, what I was it? I would call it Baptist and Southern Baptist, uh, rooted, as I said, in the American Southwest that was this um, pioneer hmm. Baptist Christianity. Hmm. Very distinct. Yeah. Yeah. That is helping one another. Um, But also, like, the Bible is the Word of God, and you don't question it. And that was the theology as I look back to it. So, you know, more Baptist, more fundamentalist. My great grandmother danced for the first time at my wedding. Um, really? But she danced at my wedding. How yes. old would she have been? She was, uh, she must have been in her late 80s. Oh, my goodness. And never I, too late. Never, never too, too late. late. <laughs> what a beautiful story. Yeah. So there was this mix of my, you know, who I am holds both of these. This uh, questioning, you know, this questioning the conservative ideology and realizing that I grew up in a very particular context while also knowing that that also held deep love and connection and freedom. So that's what I held on to as I grew and in my 20s wound up growing up in disciples and found a disciples congregation when I was in my 20s and my husband and I had just had our first child. And we found space to be able to ask questions and look for, okay, how does what we believe shape the way we live? And is this what I hope for in my life and in the world and and created real spaces for that type of conversation and work and then really started stepping out more and more into uh, mission work and learned what works and what doesn't work and what feels uh, liberating and what feels exploitative and listening to that and making adjustments. And when you say mission work, what, what are you referring to in particular? Yeah, you know, for me and the work that I was doing, it was not evangelizing. With the disciples, a lot of our work is grounded in critical presence. So rather than going to another country and trying to convert folks or teach Christianity, we would go and work at a camp or, uh, you know, build houses and service work was more the mission line that uh, I participated in. One might argue that's terribly biblical since Jesus said it summarized uh, half of everything God taught us to love our neighbors, to be present and support them. One might argue that. (laughs) (laughs) And and so eventually with all that work, my husband and I had another child and then adopted a child and continued growing and learning and stepping into new spaces. And in 2009, decided to move our family to Fort Worth, Texas from Fort Collins, Colorado, so that I could pursue a master's in divinity and work toward ordination. And so we did that three-year adventure in Texas and had a wonderful experience. And it was there that I really fell in love with interfaith work 
and realizing that through meeting people from different religions, Islam, Christian, or <laughs> Islam, different forms of Christianity, Catholicism, as well as uh, Judaism and Buddhism, and that I wound up learning more about my own beliefs and about Christianity and how I wanted to live. And that always includes being in deep relationship with people who have very different views. And so that is the path that I just continued to follow through these years of continuing to build relationships across difference, continuing to follow that curiosity and continuing to see that for me, a big part of this work is political is in advocacy, is in working for systemic change, but doing it in a way that is really rooted in love and compassion and connecting across our differences. Boy, uh, you sound a little like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, vintage 1930-31 in New York. He's at Union Theological Seminary and teaching at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And it revolutionizes his life, of course, and informs it uh, for the rest of his life. And I like to anchor our conversations in Bonhoeffer because, of course, this is a podcast all about the lifetimes and interests of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And as you're talking, you know, of course, we're mindful that Bonhoeffer was an ecumenist very interested in the whole Christian family and very interested in other religions and how they informed his own faith. So thank you for all of that. And that lands us in Denver mm -hmm. and you're assuming a post at the Interfaith Alliance. Can you tell us about that work? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and first, I should say that I did pastor in a congregation for a couple years, as you named in your introduction, which I really loved and appreciated and very much realized that my personal call, while I love congregation life, my call is to the community and kind of the church beyond the walls. And and you and me both. Yeah. <laughs> so I love these spaces. So I started with the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado in 2014. And our work is to bring people together across religious differences grounded in our, our shared values around human rights and equality and opportunity and to do education and advocacy and what we call catalyzing social change. So we are, uh, when I say interfaith, I mean deeply rooted each of us are deeply rooted in our own beliefs, our own tradition, the teachings. And at the same time, we are open to one another and open to finding points of connection and paths that we can walk together. And for us, that, that walk together is toward more progressive values and advocacy on issues around homelessness, economic justice, racial equality. We do work in LGBTQ rights and equality and reproductive rights, health and justice. And uh, we're on the front lines, both speaking and working for systemic change and working to model collective liberation 
and mutually generative relationships. These are, you know, the way we do the work is as important as the work that we do. Uh, so that's who we are. The organization's been around for 22 years. In and, fact, uh, the, the, yes. national, the national director, uh, Rabbi Jack Moline, is a great friend of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. So he that's keeps right. me abreast, uh, at least, you know, here in Washington, D.C. and around the country. Uh, but um, I think you've, you've really, at least the way he describes it, uh, the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado has really been a leader in many ways uh, for the rest of the movement uh, around the country. And I want to ask you just for an insight, maybe, yeah. from your experience, and that is many people find interfaith interreligious relationships very threatening, mm. particularly in my personal community, which is the evangelical world. Uh, there's a lot of uh, suspicion, a lot of uh, fear. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with those elements uh, there in your own experience in Colorado? I imagine there are plenty of people uh, there who experience that in the same way. They, they find mm -hmm. other religions, particularly minority religions, very threatening. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's a good question because I, it's outside of my experience. And so I, I try and understand what is threatening for for others. And I think, uh, you know, I have a friend who also does interfaith work, who is very much more from a conservative evangelical fundamentalist background. And so when he does interfaith work, the folks he's working with are all men <laughs> and hmm. all uh, like more conservative, because within each of our religious traditions, there are more conservative strands and more progressive strands within Islam, within Judaism, within Christianity, within even Buddhism and Hinduism. So it's an interesting, there are almost two different movements and conversations when we're talking about interfaith work, uh, just like so much else in our country right now, that there are folks who are doing interfaith work from a more progressive worldview and religiously and politically, and people who are doing interfaith work from a more conservative worldview, politically and religiously. And I don't think that as many people in more progressive movements find interfaith work to be threatening. And I wonder if a part of that is a lot of those movements have less exclusive understandings of their tradition uh, and they're more focused on um, common work or common goals or common ethics, whereas more conservative strands of each of our different traditions have a more exclusive worldview um, that in order for them to be right, that others must be wrong. And so being in relationship with someone else who also has that view, 
uh, is threatening because then you're, you know, at the underlying it is you are wrong in order for me to be right, or you are going to hell <laughs> in order for mm-hmm. me to, you know, it's an existential mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, threat in more conservative strains. Um, and a f- the friend of mine who do- does more interfaith work in more conservative circles said something once that really was profound to me. He said that at the beginning of his relationship building or gatherings, he says, it's okay that each of us want to convert the other. Mm. That if we just name it and we know it, that except the rabbi, he said, he's so funny. <laughs> he said, <laughs> the, the evangelical wants to walk away with both the, the imam and the rabbi converting to Christianity. The imam walks away wanting to, the, you know, both the, the, the priest and the um, rabbi to convert to Islam, and the, Jew, the rabbi will make it as difficult as possible for either to convert. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, it's so funny because in progressive interfaith movements, we have a like typically in the like community guidelines is there is no evangelizing or trying to convert one another, mm. that that's a line that we don't cross. Mm. And, and so I thought it was an interesting thing that they joke about it and talk about it and are honest about it. You know, mm. we are evangelical traditions. We believe that ours is the best way. And at least if you're honest about that, then you can enter into a conversation and it doesn't feel um, sneaky or inauthentic. So Great that's one point. way to deal with it. Uh, it reminds me when I was leading an interfaith encounter between American evangelical leaders and North African Islamic leaders. One of those uh, representatives of the Islamic community in Morocco said to me right from the outset, I suppose you want to convert me. (laughs) And it forced me to think, you know, why he would ask that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, it was an amusing moment and everyone laughed a little nervously, but I said, actually, I have no capacity to convert you. (laughs) I'm not able to do that. And, And I think sometimes my fellow evangelicals forget that. Yeah. That it's neither our work nor do we have the capacity to yes. change anyone's heart or their mind, let alone yeah. their spirit. That's a work that goes on somewhere else by Absolutely. another hand. And if perhaps if we would recognize that, we could get beyond some of this. Well, yeah, no and doubt. Yeah. One last thing I want to say sure. in there, that, that it is a, there's almost this lack of trust of God. Um, mm. that, mm. you know, I can enter in this space because my, my faith or the faith of my children, I know a lot of the threat is for our children is strong enough that, you know, I trust that God is working in life, in my life, my child's life in ways that are, um, moving us toward God. And it's almost like a, you know, you're not trusting God if you're afraid to be in this space, if your faith is so vulnerable that by being in relationship with someone who's Muslim, th- that it will diminish your faith in some way. So Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Well, these days, you're certainly not twiddling your thumbs. I mean, no. we've all got a <laughs> lot of work to do in these times. And I know you're doing that in a variety of ways. I, I read 
what you publish. And and by the way, I sat in on some of the book release, virtual book release party oh, on Facebook. On there. It was great. It was it was a it was thoroughly enjoyable. Thanks and of course Well, you had honored me by allowing me to read the manuscript ahead of publication and uh, you made it very easy for me to write an endorsement for the book. It was just like, wow, you couldn't have made that less challenging because it's <laughs> such a fabulous gift to us, especially in this period of time when you were writing, you couldn't have seen the exacerbating factors of a pandemic, of a catastrophe when it comes to racial injustice in this country. But here it is, and holy chaos has arrived. I dare say, quoting scripture, as I want to do as one of those <laughs> Bible thumpers, for such a time as this, you've arrived for such a time as this. And in writing about holy chaos, you said, my goal is to spark our imaginations as we move forward together and begin to wonder what might happen if we brought our full loving selves into the difficult, holy, and chaotic spaces of life. Mm -hmm. Have you seen some of that happening now, uh, post-publication? Yeah, um, it's a great question, right? It's such a strange time um, because it's, it's kind of hard to see beyond the zoom meetings. <laughs> mm, <laughs> and right. I, I think that it's often the case that when we are in the middle of a storm, that we, for our survival, our brains have to really buckle down and focus on today. And I don't know if it's, you know, some gift from God and it's something that I think we experience in early parenthood and these different pivotal moments of life when we our, our capacity is today. And um, I am trying to create spaces for imagination, but I'm also not beating myself up too much for that being a real struggle. Hmm. And and I see others going through that as well. So I don't know yet what the impact or if that will spark. Uh, it's fun to see little conversations happening or um, work moving. We're doing work here in the little town I live in, in Littleton, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver, which you might have heard of because we are home of Columbine High School. Indeed. And uh, we're a very white suburb, rural feeling suburb, about 15 minutes from downtown Denver. Um, but there's work happening to reckon with racism and the ways our communities are built to keep us separated and divided based on race and religion and class and, and, ideology and so there's little movements stirring here in our little town to confront that to really understand the history of redlining the history of even 
genocide. We are in the West. We, we are on uh, native land. We are in communities that were intentionally built to be white. And so there is imaginative work happening in our little circle. So I, I guess I hope that that's happening in other little circles in this time as people have paused so much of life that's been you know closed due to the virus and and we're spending more time talking to our neighbors and reading and learning and reflecting maybe this is you know the idealist in me that i hope that some of that's happening well and i know it's difficult (laughs) of course you know as parents we have hopes Mm -hmm. and dreams for our kids and there's things we hope they'll do even now with adult children i feel that way about my own uh how do you call adult children kids but anyway uh, Uh (laughs) our our offspring our progeny (laughs) uh we have hopes and dreams for them as pastors we're we certainly have that for those under our spiritual charge congregants members and so forth uh and then uh you know, as authors, we have hopes and dreams for our books. Yes. What, what are your hopes and dreams for Holy Chaos? What, what, what do you hope people will do with your book? I honestly hope it will just inspire people to think a little more deeply. I'm, I'm a big fan of Hannah Arendt. And uh, I wondered if she was, uh, she and Bonhoeffer were contemporaries with one another. And I actually did a little bit of research to find out, I don't know, a year or two ago, if they had known each other or worked together. Um, Hannah Arendt is a Jewish woman, uh, philosopher, political philosopher in Nazi Germany and escaped. Um, And one of she wrote uh the banality of evil and talks about that it's not necessarily some ill will is the source of evil in the world often that it's simply people not thinking and not reflecting and being in dialogue with other people that leads to can lead to incredible violence and suffering and so (laughs) this little book does not go there necessarily directly but my hope is that it inspires people to think to think about why they believe what they believe and what in their life has shaped their own worldview and to ask, is that aligned with their values and what they hope for in the world? And, and then to start stepping into spaces and kind of testing that thinking and believing and moving toward deeper spaces of connection. <laughs> well, before we started this recording, I referred to Holy Chaos as a kind of vaccine, which might be pushing it a little too far here, uh, with given the uh, the alarming, uh, you know, moment we're in. 
but I, you know, just thinking, reflecting back on my first read of it, and then listening to you read it during your, uh, during the Zoom party, Mm -hmm. uh, the release party, and of course, I have to always refresh myself before a conversation like this, so I was... (laughs) looking through and uh, and then reading the table of contents, which I always do to bring back the memory mm-hmm. of reading it uh, in its entirety. And I thought these these this is at least like a seed mm-hmm. planted and I pray in in good earth that will bring out a, a rich harvest for us, particularly, and I don't mean to future trip here. I, I don't want to mm-hmm. take a flight of fancy, as Bonhoeffer would have called it, uh, into an imaginative future. But I am an optimist by nature, and I do have a great confidence in God, what you were uh, mm-hmm. reflecting on a little earlier. And I do think of the future, and when uh, the pandemic passes, and perhaps when we have... A reconciliation with truth mm-hmm. and we're able to heal some of the fissures or at least begin to build bridges across these great divides that we're experiencing now uh, in our culture in our society in our communities and I think about frankly a time when we have a, a, a much more salutary positive uh, leadership in the federal government in our country. I'm going to do everything I can to pray, hope, and work towards that. Mm-hmm. And then there comes the aftermath. And, and in thinking about holy chaos, just today, getting ready for our conversation here, I was thinking about my conversation with Hans von Hammerstein, who was one of the last living persons who would give talks about his conversations with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he had been with Bonhoeffer uh, both in a prison cell and on a transport truck uh, before, just before Bonhoeffer's execution at Flossenburg concentration camp. And I asked, I saw him in in Germany during a study tour uh, in 2010. He's since passed on. But I asked him, a man in his 90s with uh, all his mental faculties, he was 17 years old, I believe, when he last talked with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a catechumen, a student of Martin Niemöller's, the famous, very courageous pastor in Berlin, Hmm. and had been arrested by the Nazis simply for being a Sunday school student, basically. And I asked him, I said, what was the nature of that last conversation with Bonhoeffer? And he said, he told me it would be my responsibility to help rebuild Germany and civilization after the war was over. And he sat with that all his life and really took it on as a mission. And I thought, you know, when we get to that place and, and we're here now. I mean, certainly we have to build and we have to rebuild and we have to repair. But after these monumental events of recent days, we will need tools. We will need effective, yes. useful, practical tools to help us 
to reclaim what's been lost, to rebuild what's been destroyed, to build out what doesn't yet exist. And you've given us one of those tools in Holy Chaos. That's how I think of this book. It's, a, it's, more, it's even more than a manual. It's, it's a toolbox because mm. what you give us in this book isn't just a lot of romantic poetry and prose, which there's plenty there. I'm telling you, folks will really enjoy the read, as I did. There were times I was smiling. There were times I was tearing up. There were times I was laughing. Mm -hmm. It's a very enjoyable book. Thank you for giving us that. Thank you. But it's also filled with practical, um, is it proper to say implementable? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> techniques, techniques, if you will. And yeah. and. Can you pull out one or two of them? I mean, something really practical. Like, one of the things I include in the book is this, because it works. What What are one of those things? I, mean, I know I'm catching you off guard. I should have no, given you that's a, okay. a, a talking that's okay. points, but I didn't. So nope, you can take good. a minute it's good. to think yeah, about it. You know, it's it. funny, as I, you were saying that you read through the table of contents, and I've actually got, anytime I'm going to talk about my book, I have to, like, flip through and what did I say um, before I go and talk to someone about it? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so, exactly. So um, but so I, I guess one of the things that is a very practical and I think a little odd, um, even having written it, uh, is this thinking around navigating fear. Mm-hmm. And so I have in here a little flow chart um, and I'm a pretty visual and pragmatic person and logical, I guess, thinker. And so I think a practice is to start to notice in our body what we feel when we feel fear. Feel. And, and then acknowledging Fear is a normal biological reaction, and it is also trained and trainable. And, and so following this like flowchart of asking, when I feel fear, is this fear that is legitimate in terms of I am in real physical danger? or I'm not in real physical danger, you know, like I'm being chased by a bear, or I'm not in physical danger, but I could be an emotional, spiritual, or relational danger. And then asking ourselves, is this worth the risk? Mm -hmm. Because there are times when we are putting ourselves, or we find ourselves in a fear-inducing situation, and we make a conscious decision to take the risk, because we've weighed that it's worth it or it's not. And, and so, you know, if you go down the chart, continue to ask, I am in physical danger and nope, not worth it. I'm being chased by a bear. I need to stay calm and get out of the situation and then reflect, how did I wind up here? Um, was my fear grounded in a real threat being chased by a bear? Yes, it was. What's the worst could have happened? I could have been eaten by the bear. What actually happened? I made it away. Um, was anyone hurt by my action or inaction? Was anyone helped? What would I say or do differently? 
how can I push myself further in healthy ways? So moving into the other kind of, that's one strain of the river of a flow chart. Uh, another path would be, I'm not in physical danger, but I could be in emotional, spiritual, or relational danger. So let's say my neighbor is upset about my Black Lives Matter sign and feels that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. So am I going to embark on this conversation? I'm feeling fear because I don't like conflict and this is my neighbor and I don't want to create, you know, conflict in the neighborhood. So I ask myself, is this, is confronting this situation worth taking the risk? Does it further my goals? Yes or no. If I decide yes, it is worth the conversation, then I stay calm, I breathe, I focus on why. Why am I committed to this space? Why do I think it's important to calmly have a conversation and explain why my Black Lives Matter sign is important and why I believe um, that this is a cause that is valuable to stand up for? Uh, so, you know, I can follow this path and then at the end of the conversation it can go either way, right? I mean, any, there, that's always, there's always a risk. There's inevitable risk anytime we step into complicated situations. Then I can reflect where my fears grounded in real threats. What was the worst that could have happened? What actually happened? Was anyone hurt by my action or inaction? If I had not gone into that conversation with my neighbor, who would have been hurt? Was anyone helped? Did I shift in some way this person's perspective of the Black Lives Matter movement? Did I perhaps plant a seed that Black lives are actually demeaned and diminished in our current society and in the United States? Was anyone helped? What would I say or do differently? How can I push myself into fear inducing spaces further in healthy ways. So th this is just one practice. And I think the more we wind up, the more we step into these spaces and start to feel in our body, okay, I feel fearful or scared and I want to run. And we can ask ourselves, is this worth it or not? Wow, to get that kind of advice from my wife, Cheryl, who's a psychotherapist, would have cost people a lot of money, <laughs> a lot more Maybe than I the need cost. Maybe fields, Rob. <laughs> a lot more than the cost of holy chaos. You get a lot. That's a lot of good, and that's just one one practical suggestion that you make in yes. Holy Chaos. There are a bunch of them. So in so many ways, I think uh, this book will be, of course, beneficial not only to individual readers, but I'm hoping there are already reading groups. I'm sure there are. Yeah, yeah. Clusters of people who are not just reading together, but practicing together, even virtually at a distance now mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I do that with colleagues and friends, you know, across the internet and and on the phone and you know in whatever other way we do it. But I would highly recommend it because taking an exercise like that that you just took us through and doing that together and sharing one another's experiences and some are going to be very different from the other and and some will reinforce our own experience would only enhance uh, what I think is going to be the fruit uh, of of this of this book so I've got to tell you Amanda uh, holy chaos is a gift for our times and and I'm, I'm I'm bold enough to suggest where it may come from. Uh, I think you were the instrument, uh, but I think it's a very generous gift to humanity. And I know it sounds to some people hyperbolic, but we need these insights, we need these tools, and we need them from practitioners, mm. not just theorists. And you are a practitioner. I've watched you from afar. I know of the work. I've been there. I've met the people around you. Uh, I've seen the good fruit that you've borne. And now you've packaged some of that up. And, you know, it's like a gift box for us. So I'm really hoping you have a wide reading of Holy Chaos creating connections in divisive times. We need this book now. We need to be engaging in its exercises now, but we will really need it six months from now. We will really need it a year from now. So maybe folks will think about how they can make it a gift themselves. Read it and then buy it for upcoming big events, big life events and holidays. And, <laughs> and let's scatter the seed uh, as Jesus commanded us as Christians, those of us who are Christians, we understand the obligation we have to scatter good seed and let it fall on good earth and bring uh, good fruit, uh, good harvest. So Amanda, thanks for spending the time with Thank me. You. Thanks for Thank these you. reflections. Thanks for all you do, for your friendship, for your collegial partnership in all of this work that together we're called to do. But thanks for loaning this content to the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. I know he'd be pleased <laughs> with it, or I suspect oh, he would. Yeah, that would be. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful. I'm grateful for your friendship and grateful for your modeling uh how to walk into these complicated spaces and i i have a little shout out to your story in here uh oh and in fact you do that's right i'm sorry i didn't remember that that's right Uh, yes you do i think that you are really um a unique story that steps into these spaces bravely and grounded and and engages in conversation in ways that are difficult and really rooted in grace and i i appreciate that and appreciate that model well it'd be hard to do those things 
without having companions along <laughs> the path. And you are certainly one for me. I hope I am for you. And there are a lot of others surrounding us, and we need one another very badly in these mm -hmm. times. So I'm going back. I'm putting Holy Chaos next to my bed, and I'm going to do some refreshing because just <laughs> after this conversation, I'm realizing how much I need to do a reread of Holy Chaos, Creating Connections in Divisive Times. My conversation partner has been Amanda Henderson from way out there in Denver, Littleton, Colorado. Same, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Great Thank talking you so with you, Amanda. Great Blessings talking with you. to you and all yours. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.